This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, plus the opportunity to vote each week on what upcoming topics we'll cover. While full membership gets you all that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the groundwork being laid for the Green New Deal and the fight, particularly within the Democratic Party, that's heating up around the policy. Clips today come from Now This News, The Next System Project, The Green News Report, The Dig, Democracy Now!, Sustainable Human, and The Brian Lehrer Show. It's time for a Green New Deal now. The two central problems of our time are climate change and stagnant wages, with widening inequality. A Green New Deal would tackle both. For decades, scientists have warned of the catastrophic consequences of carbon pollution and climate change. But the window is closing for action. Experts now predict that within 10 years, climate change will be irreversible, devastating the economy and threatening the health and safety of millions of Americans and countless people around the world. Meanwhile, the wages and economic prospects of Americans have stagnated for decades. The typical American worker now earns around $44,500 a year, which isn't much more than what the typical worker earned 40 years ago, adjusted for inflation. A Green New Deal would provide massive investments in the clean energy infrastructure necessary to cut carbon pollution, creating good-paying jobs and revitalizing the economy. The basis of the proposal would be a carbon tax on polluters, creating incentives for companies to cut their use of fossil fuels and switch to clean energy. The revenue would then be invested in programs like job training and education, new construction, energy efficiency, and reforestation. Now, critics will claim that America can't afford a Green New Deal. Baloney. Clean energy is already cheaper than coal in many parts of the country, and wind and solar are on pace to be cheaper than natural gas by 2020. Clean energy also creates more jobs than fossil fuels, and more Americans already work in solar than in coal, gas, and oil extraction combined. In fact, America can't afford not to invest in clean energy. According to a recent report by a group of federal agencies, if we fail to act, climate change will shrink the American economy by 10% by the end of the century. In the depths of the Great Depression, Franklin D. Roosevelt had the courage to bring America back from the economic devastation by investing in the American people. It's time to renew that spirit to meet the challenges of the 21st century. The Green New Deal, of course, (laughs) harkens back to the New Deal itself, which was a massive program of economic transition to provide a greater social safety net, bring the United States out of the Great Depression and include more people in our democracy. It was an imperfect project, but one 
that created a lot of the things that are the bedrock of American society and foundation today and created a lot uh, more widespread economic prosperity. And it wasn't just one bill or one piece of legislation, but rather a framework to move towards a better society. And and that's what we think needs to happen with a Green New Deal to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs for Americans across the country. Because climate change is a massive global problem that affects all of society. Um, and it's not going to be just <laughs> one level of government or one small piece of legislation that can move all this forward, but a national economic industrial mobilization uh, on the scale or perhaps greater than what we saw with the, the New Deal or the transition that was made to move our economy to fight World War II. Something like that, something big and bold like that is what's actually needed, uh, what science is telling us very clearly is needed to address climate change. Because a month ago now, the world's top scientists issued a new report where they sort of clarified the level of societal transition that is necessary. And basically what they said is that we need to wholesale transform every aspect of society towards zero emissions and sustainability as fast as possible. Globally, if that does not happen in the next 12 years from today, if that does not happen by 2030, we may risk irreversible climate impacts that could damage and completely uh, cripple human civilization as we know it. You know, in mentioning the IPCC report and the urgency therein uh, and the kind of changes that's needed, it, it reminds me that, you know, when uh, me and Johanna were talking about this episode, she, she mentioned that uh, the, the, the phrase Green New Deal was coined by Thomas Friedman, a uh, New York Times columnist in 2007, uh, in an article that kind of appealed to the profit motivations of multinational corporations. So, Johanna, do you think that we can achieve the kind of uh, economic and political changes necessary to adequately respond to the threat of climate change through appeals like that? What's your perspective on uh, the, the 2007 take? Yeah, um, Adam, I think that's a really good question. And for me, the Green New Deal is really a moment for us to shift um, our economy and political economy um, so that it really centers on justice and equity, um, as Evan just mentioned, as he was describing why uh, a Green New Deal is so important. Actually, in the case of rural electrification, which was a major component of the last New Deal, one of the major reasons they focused on rural electrification is because one out of 10 farms out in rural America were not electrified. And even with farmers going and pleading to uh, investor-owned utilities and, and for for-profit major corporations, they didn't move into those spaces. And it was a because they saw it as an, a social good, not an economic one. And I think that there are some, um, this matches in many ways the moment we are in right now with the climate crisis, where multinational corporations and, you know, many energy companies have not taken the right steps and, and moved us fast enough because of some of the imperatives there. 
And so what could be possible in this moment for a Green New Deal is for us to shift some of these ownership structures and shift, you know, what jobs mean by, for instance, you know, shifting, you know, how utilities are even owned. And so we can put them within the public interest. So yes, there might be a certain amount of, you know, incentives provided for uh, corporations. But I think that this is also this moment where we can think about like who owns the economy and how we can actually ensure that it isn't the 1% that's making the money off of the Green New Deal, but it's all of us and it's really centering justice, which has been a big narrative moving through the Green New Deal as of right now uh, with uh, Ocasio-Cortez and and um, the Sunrise uh, Movement who have really said that this has to be really centered on equity. Uh, yeah, and the, the question of equity is really important here in terms of like who benefits. And I think we want to explore that much deeper, but taking a step back before we get to who benefits from the Green New Deal. Anthony, I wanted to turn to you and ask you, because I know I, I read a little bit this week about what the Sierra Club has been writing about the Green New Deal, but uh, there's, some good, there's some good suggestions there on what projects and work would actually be done as part of a Green New Deal. And I wanted to ask, you know, within that context, are there specific examples of uh, green projects that you'd point to in order to make the case for a broader national project like uh, we, we'd see in the, a potential Green New Deal? Absolutely. As you mentioned, the Green New Deal is an idea that's a few years old, and kudos to Sunrise and new members of Congress that have been popularizing it since this last election. Uh, But on the ground in local communities and in states, the Green New Deal and the policies and projects that it can and does include are also already tangible. So The three major goals of a Green New Deal are creating good jobs, cutting climate and local pollution, and counteracting racial and economic inequity. And to tackle the climate crisis at the speed that justice and science demand, a Green New Deal is going to have to include projects from upgrading our infrastructure, revitalizing our energy system, retrofitting our buildings, and restoring our ecosystems. The list is large and it has the potential to create millions of jobs, uplift the resiliency of communities, slash air, water, and climate pollution, and can go across a huge spectrum of community impacts and priorities from transit to energy efficiency. And that's what I feel is so exciting about the Green New Deal is that it opens up, it's this umbrella and platform for all of the major public investments we need to not only tackle the climate crisis, but also to to tackle the crisis of inequality and to finally build a country that works for all of us.
Americans are waking up to the need for action on climate change, according to a new Reuters poll that found broad consensus. More than 70 percent agreed with the statement that the U.S. should take aggressive action to slow global warming and that it poses an imminent or serious threat to the United States, including a majority of Republicans. A different poll from Yale Climate Communications found strong bipartisan support for the Green New Deal. That's a proposal from some Democrats to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels to clean renewable energy. The Green New Deal would set a national target of 100 percent zero carbon electricity by 2030, upgrade the nation's energy grid, buildings, transportation infrastructure and energy efficiency and provide training for the jobs to accomplish it all. Eighty percent of respondents supported that including 60% of Republicans. However, Huffington Post warns that previous research shows voter support for bipartisan policies tends to collapse when they're told it's supported by a politician from the opposite party. (laughs) So get ready for the climate change denial industry to smear the Green New Deal as a partisan policy to undermine it. And to undermine the majority Republican support for it. Today's episode is sponsored by Pact, and if you're looking for well-made clothes with no hidden agenda, try Pact Apparel. That's P-A-C-T. Pact makes incredibly soft clothing for the whole family with a comforting amount of transparency. They use 100% organic cotton and other sustainable materials. What they don't use is toxic dyes, synthetic fertilizers, chemicals, and other gross stuff you don't want touching your skin or in your water supply. They partner with fair trade certified factories where the people who make the clothes are treated with dignity and given additional wages to invest in their families and communities. And Pact is on a mission to democratize organic by pricing their clothes fairly. Tees are just 15 bucks, leggings 30 and undies only $9. Amanda has had her new packed sweatshirt for a couple of months now, so I asked her what she had to say about it. Her response, it's soft, it's chic, and I wear it all the time. All of which is true. I can vouch for it. Shop women's, men's, and kids' styles at wearpacked.com and enter the code BESTOFLEFT, all one word, at checkout for 25% off your first order. That's W-E-A-R-P-A-C-T dot com and the code BESTOFLEFT for 25% off. It's been this kind of new generation of young left women entering the house who have been at the forefront of pushing the Green New Deal and the establishment Democrats see this proposal to create a select committee to look into what a Green New Deal would look like as they see it in kind of like real politic terms, maybe not incorrectly, (laughs) as something that challenges their authority because as senior members of the party establishment, they control all of the 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 committees that legislation would normally move through. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's a threat to their power. And also, you know, one of the provisions of the resolution is that nobody who takes money from the fossil fuel industry, campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry can participate, which for many Democrats is a, is a big problem <laughs> who do take a lot of money from fossil fuel interests. And so I think there, you know, that is, I don't think anybody has like come out and said, I oppose this because I can't, bring the fossil fuel industry's opinion <laughs> into it. 
Um, but I think that's certainly sort of in the in the minds of some some people. So one of the key things that the Green New Deal does is to connect economic justice and the green energy transition, which are two things that conservatives, the fossil fuel industry, and the Trump administration have cynically but all too often successfully pitted against each other. Can you explain a little bit about the the politics of the Green New Deal stitching those two things together as things that go together rather than are opposed? I mean, I think the most basic point to make here, right, is that we really can't get this done. We really can't cap emissions to the degree that we need to without without the type of things that are, you know, pretty endemic to any any version of the Green New Deal. So, you know, for instance, millions of people need to be involved with the work of transitioning over from fossil fuels. And that's work, you know, across sectors of society, both kind of encouraging the types of work that aren't sort of bound up in in, you know, carbon intensive supply chains and, you know, doing the sort of classical things we think of as, as being part of part of the suite of a a policy. So, you know, transforming our grid system to be able to accept energy rather than just distribute it, building up massive amounts of solar and wind energy infrastructure, doing a lot of like research and development to um, encourage a transition and really kind of hard to hard to transition sectors. That's one part of it is simply just like there needs to be a lot of work to get this done. That work can be very good and well paid. Um, Indeed, much of it like needs to take place in sectors which are already heavily unionized, which already offer very high paid work, things like construction, for instance. Uh, I think the other part of it comes from a sort of political calculation um, that people don't want to pay more um, to do this. And there's no, I mean, there's, we can talk more about like why there's you know no reason why anybody's life should should get harder um, as a as a result of of transitioning away from fossil fuels and, and building a low carbon world. But I think it's you know as we're seeing in France right now, right? Like people are are very uh, aware <laughs> of what they're being screwed over um, and when things simply aren't fair. Yeah, it's pre- it's precisely the sort of neoliberal pseudo environmentalism of people like Macron that facilitates the conservative effort to pit the environment and people's economic interests against one another because the policies of people like Macron literally manifest those two things as 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 pitted against one another no exactly and and i i think you know the whole narrative around a carbon tax which i fully expected coming into the new congress would be the sort of center of the debate about climate policy, just because it's been so sort of hegemonic and in, in the debate in this country for so long and seeing a carbon tax or some sort of price on carbon as the answer to climate change. And it sort of comes from this like really, um, you know, utopian free market fantasy that if we just kind of tweak the prices enough, if we just kind of send the right market signals to the biggest polluters in the world, the most powerful corporations in the world, that they will change their business model to effectively liquidate themselves, which is what the science is very clear needs to happen, is that, you know, within within the next 50 years of the absolute, absolute latest, um, coal, oil, and natural gas should not be in our, our energy system, and likely much, much sooner than that. A sort of odd calculation for them to make on a, you know, scientific level, like on a sense, in the sense that this needs to happen very quickly, and, and traditionally market signals are not great ways to make things happen very quickly. And in a political sense, I mean, what we're seeing right now is people like 
are rightfully very angry when they're being asked to pay for something that, you know, is not making all that much of a difference in emissions. Um, and when some of the biggest polluters, like the like Total, for instance, in France, pays virtually no taxes um, and is allowed to sort of operate scot-free. And so, you know, there, there's a sort of basic injustice that's embedded into asking, you know, everyday people to pay to pay more for something. And that has, you know, relatively little benefit for the for the planet. And so the politics of the Green New Deal are precisely the opposite of neoliberal climate politics it's a it's a politics of abundance rather than of scarcity totally yeah and if the kind of neoliberal approach to climate change which again has been like super super dominant particularly in the u.s but other places is that everybody has to sacrifice a little bit you know all of us individually have to give up something um, because our individual choices are what's feeding this crisis. Our decision to take vacations, our decision to eat hamburgers, our decision to use plastic straws, this is the core of the problem. So, you know, such a deeply kind of neoliberal framework. And what a new Green New Deal says is that actually we have all of these resources available to us that are being hoarded right now by very few people. Um, and if we simply invest them in smarter places, actually invest them in most of the people, not, you know, the 1%, uh, then, you know, we, we can get this done. Uh, that, 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 that climate change is not an issue of sacrifice, that it's an issue of investment and um, distributing society's resources fairly. just like the New Deal, was about enshrining what the values and rights of our society truly are. And the green, with the Green New Deal, we're trying to say that we have a right, every community, no matter your zip code, no matter the color of your skin, has a right to clean water, has a right to clean air, has a right to good food and healthy communities, has a right to a livable future, and perhaps most importantly, has a right to a dignified life and, and good family-sustaining jobs. And, you know, as young people, our generation is both most screwed uh, by the current economic crisis as well as climate change, and that we know that that plays out along class and racial lines as well, like you pointed out. So the youth black unemployment rate in this country looks very, very different than the unemployment rate overall, particularly amongst young black men. And that that is also that although we may have a smoothed out on unemployment rate across the country, that that sometimes poverty and unemployment can be hyper localized within communities. With the job guarantee, you know, what we really want to say is that there are so many people in this country in need of good, meaningful work and there is so much good and meaningful work to be done to stop climate change. And by including this provision uh, around a, a, a job guarantee, we can say that no matter what community you live in or what your job currently is, it has the ability to diversify local and regional economies and assist with a just transition. And there will be other measures needed in 
a Green New Deal to ensure a just transition, but we think that a job guarantee can be a critically important part of that. Yeah, I think that it's a really good point, Evan, and a jobs guarantee um, is a really integral part of how we move a, a Green New Deal forward in a way that really does center equity. I think there are really interesting intersections with organized labor as well here, where, you know, if we're trying to create like long-term jobs that have wages and working hours that have been, you know, d- determined and are providing jobs on the long term that are, um, you know, family-sustaining su- wages um, or Organized labor has uh, historically been a major part of that. And I think that it does intersect in many ways with a jobs guarantee um, as like a, particularly an apprenticeship role and creating relationships be- between a jobs guarantee and unions will be important as we're building up some of these new trades, particularly in things like electrification, where we're electrifying more and more of our economy. If we can start to train people up through the jobs guarantee and then shift them into unionized labor that can provide us kind of the longer term haul um, for folks and um, and train and train people up for the long haul. The job guarantee is also something that we are exploring here at Sierra Club about how both communities and workers are heard, are heard in our response to this crisis. And as a union member myself, um, labor solidarity has taught me that a Green New Deal must center both the communities most impacted by industry and those who are threatened to be left behind in its absence. And so the jobs created by this approach must be high road union jobs, family sustaining wages and benefits, safe working conditions. And as Johanna mentioned, having key training and advancement opportunities. So that this is actually a material and transformative transition that doesn't just serve one or two of our issues, but actually brings all our people forward. Yeah. And to build off of both of those points, the last thing that I would just add about a a job guarantee is the way that it would work would be mandating a certain amount of jobs that would either be directly provided by the government or through government contracts, through public-private partnerships. And what you can do with that is create standards for what types of jobs those need to be. And so you can say that all of these jobs need to be, at a minimum, paying $15 an hour, that they need to be union jobs that are allowing the right to organize for public or private workers, and so much more, benefits, et cetera, et cetera. And what you can do with that is create a new floor for the economy and what uh, and shift the entire labor market to what the floor of labor standards need to be in this nation. And so we have a really powerful ability to bring in a lot uh, of the labor movement, people fighting for 15 in a union and more into this coalition uh, around a Green New Deal through the job guarantee.
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Arrett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter, with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under $25. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is facing criticism from some climate activists for failing to back a Green New Deal. Last week, Pelosi announced the formation of a new select committee on the climate crisis headed by longstanding Florida Congress member Kathy Castor. But the committee is far weaker than what backers of a Green New Deal had envisioned. The committee will not have subpoena power or the power to draft legislation. One of the most prominent backers of the Green New Deal has been newly sworn in New York Congressman. Member Alexandra Casio Cortez. On Sunday, um, she was interviewed on 60 Minutes by Anderson Cooper. You're talking about zero carbon emissions, no use of fossil fuels within 12 years? That is the goal. It's ambitious. And how is that possible? Are you talking about everybody having to drive an electric car? It's going to require a lot of rapid change that we don't even conceive as possible right now. What is the problem with trying to push our technological capacities to the furthest extent possible? This would require, though, raising taxes. There's an element where, yeah, people are going to have to start paying their fair share in taxes. Do you have a specific on the tax rate? You know, you look at our tax rates back in the 60s, and when you have a progressive tax rate system, your tax rate, you know, let's say from zero to $75,000 may be 10% or 15%, et cetera. But once you get to like the tippy tops, uh, on your 10 millionth dollar, uh, sometimes you see tax rates as high as 60 or 70%. For more, we go to Boston, where we're joined by Varshini Prakash. She's founder of Sunrise Movement, the youth-led climate group that's occupied and lobbied at congressional offices, including Nancy Pelosi's last month, with the woman we just heard, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. People risked arrest to demand adoption of the Green New Deal and bold climate leadership. Varshini Prakash, welcome to Democracy Now! Talk about what has been proposed, you know, when uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, did that historic gaveling in with the children and grandchildren of Congress members, as well as her own. Um, In her speech, she called out the Select Committee on on the Climate Crisis. What do you think is—works about that committee, and what are you disappointed by? Sure. Well, what we saw last week was uh, we were very glad to see that Nancy Pelosi mentioned uh, the climate crisis in her address— But calling it a crisis and an existential threat and treating it like one are two very different things. 
So essentially, Nancy Pelosi is reviving a 10-year-old committee, um, the Select Committee for the Climate Crisis. Um, but we find that it's actually woefully and inexcusably short, falls short of what we need in this moment in terms of climate ambition in this crucial juncture in history. Um, namely, it falls short in three ways, some of which you already mentioned. Um, it doesn't include anything about creating a draft, sort of a blueprint uh, for a plan for a Green New Deal over the next year ahead of the next presidential election. It doesn't include any provision that actually bars uh, people who are taking money from oil and gas executives and lobbyists who are jeopardizing my generation's future from sitting on the committee, something that, frankly, we find to be uh, a conflict of interest. Um, and thirdly, it doesn't include any power to subpoena, um, which actually renders this committee less powerful than the one we had even a decade ago. Um, so we were feeling really disappointed that Nancy Pelosi had failed to follow the leadership of the 45 members of Congress, including some of the freshest faces of the Democratic Party, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Jonah Goose, so many more. Um, in calling for a select committee for a Green New Deal. And we've seen the hurricanes get bigger. We've seen fires level entire cities and towns. Uh, we've seen people struggling to breathe clean air and, and drink fresh water, uh, fresh and clean water, and uh, are not seeing the Democratic Party step up with the level of climate ambition that we actually need that has been mandated uh, by U.N. climate scientists. Last week, Congressmember Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, in D.C. and even in our own party, it's apparently too controversial to ask that we keep oil and gas companies away from enviro policy. Your response, Varshini? Absolutely. I mean, putting somebody who takes oil and gas money on a committee to stop the climate crisis is akin to pouring oil on a fire and expecting to put it out. Um, we're talking about a fundamental conflict of interest. Um, people who are taking money from the corporations and individuals who have spent the last 50 years misinforming the public on the science, um, misleading the public on the science willfully, um, and buying out politicians on both sides of the aisles, for sure the GOP, but also a large number of Democrats, um, should not— um, uh, be having a seat at the table in crafting and, and holding these public hearings uh, and informing the public about the severity of the crisis and, and building the consensus around the solutions to do it. We'd be hard pressed to really support somebody to sit on this committee um, who hasn't taken the no fossil fuel money pledge, um, which is why we have been uh, acting, um, why we have, push, have been pushing for Representative Kathy Castor to take the pledge. Mm. Do you want Congressmember Ocasio-Cortez to head this committee? Sure. We definitely think it would be a positive if, if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, were able to participate and push this committee in some way. Uh, but frankly, we are seeing that our options um, through institutional means through this committee 
um, are not really going to happen in the ways that we wanted. Um, so we're actually looking at not just uh, pushing this select committee on a climate crisis to be better and push for um, the real solutions to the climate crisis, what what UN climate scientists are saying, unprecedented levels of change to our economy and our society over the next 12 years, um, we're, we actually are, are realizing that we need to take this fight to a Green New Deal beyond the Beltway and to the American people. Mm. Um, Pelosi's office said they'd meet with you, have they? Yes, we met with them uh, prior to the announcement about the select committee. And what was what came out of that discussion? Well, largely, they said they were supportive of our aims uh, and then created the select committee for a climate crisis. So it feels a little bit um, a bit of a contradiction to say that they're on our on our same page, but not to include any of the clear demands and provisions that we had asked for previously. Um, it's clear that the select committee for the climate crisis is largely going to be a number of public hearings or or um uh, information gathering and, and frankly, the time to raise awareness about the crisis is over. And at this point in history, we need to start developing the plans uh, to actually confront the crisis and lay the groundwork. We're clear that we're not going to be able to ramrod legislation through in the 116th Congress. That's obvious um, with a Trump administration that is completely bought and sold by fossil fuel executives um, and a climate denying Senate. But we can start to lay the groundwork in these next two years for what an actual plan might look like. And that is an opportunity that Democrats are missing right now. You did not get your demand for fossil fuel-funded lawmakers not to serve on the committee. Will you protest those or highlight those that are chosen for this committee? Will you ask well, that we'll they stop accepting that money? Absolutely. I think we will ask every single member on this committee to reject oil and gas contributions, um, uh, oil and gas executive and lobbyist contributions, and prioritize the health and well-being of our democracy, our society, and our climate instead. There's a basic change going on with a younger generation estranged older people. There's a change in the way you define freedom, the way you define power, and the way you define community. And these changes really suggest the real revolution. For my generation and, and generations before me, freedom was very simple. To be free is to be an autonomous agent, to be self-sufficient, to be independent, to be not beholden to others, to be an island to oneself so that one can have freedom as exclusivity. younger generation that grew up on the internet, autonomy is death. Being an island to oneself is death. 
because for your generation, you ask the question, how can I flourish to the full extent of my possibilities here on the planet? And it's clear that your answer to that is I flourish to the extent that I'm embedded in community after community where I can share my talents and those talents can benefit the network and come back to benefit myself. I'm free because I have access. And for you, freedom is not exclusivity. It's inclusivity. You have a different sensibility about power, which makes the older generation very nervous. We essentially believe that power always has to be a pyramid. It goes from the top down. That is power. There's no other way to define power. It's a pyramid. But young people that grow up on the internet, it's strange because you grew up thinking that power has to do with the networks you're engaged in. For you, power is not vertical, it's lateral. For you, power is being enmeshed in network after network where you benefit each other. Open source. And finally, I think most importantly, we're seeing a change in the way a younger generation perceives identity to community. I grew up in a nation state, we were very clear on community. That is, each individual is born to be an autonomous agent and we're each sovereign. And each of us compete with other sovereign individuals in the marketplace for scarce resources in a zero-sum game. Our nations represent us because they are sovereigns. And they represent all the millions of individual citizens who are sovereigns against other nations. And each nation then competes with every other nation for scarce resources in the marketplace or the battlefield in a zero-sum game. Here's my question. Does anyone here believe that we're going to be able to address climate change and bring the human family together and take our responsibility for our fellow creatures in the earth we live in with that worldview? Anybody? What we're beginning to see with a younger generation, and I don't want to overstretch this, but I'm beginning to sense a shift from geopolitics to biosphere consciousness. The biosphere is that 19 kilometers from the stratosphere of the ocean, where all life and all the chemicals on the planet interact to maintain the ecosystems, the biology of the earth. These kids are learning ecological footprint. We actually have young people coming home and at dinner time, they're asking their parents where the hamburger came from on the table. They're saying, did that hamburger come from a rainforest? Did they have to destroy the trees for four little inches of topsoil, which only gives you three years of grazing, so that that cow could become my hamburger? And when those trees are destroyed for the topsoil to graze the cow for the hamburger, the kids are smart enough to understand that those trees harbor rare species of plant and animal life that only live in those canopies. They go extinct. And then they connect the dots. If the trees disappear for the soil to graze the cow for the hamburger, those trees are not there to absorb CO2 from industrial emissions. And that means the temperature of the planet goes up. 
they're beginning to understand that everything each of us does intimately affects some other human being, some other creature, and the planet we live in. We live in an indivisible biosphere community. There's no escape. This isn't just academic. Our well-being depends on the well-being of the whole system and all the creatures in it. We all have to really come together. We've got one generation to lay down this new biosphere consciousness. Pass on this legacy so when your grandchildren look back at you, they can say you did the right thing. You helped replenish the planet, got us off carbon, helped show our proper respect to generations not yet here, including our fellow creatures. dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly, indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. On Tuesday, New Jersey Congressman Frank Pallone, Democrat and the new chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, made some news on our program when he rejected the idea that his Democratic Energy Committee members, including himself as chairman, should shun contributions from fossil fuel companies. Now, in just a minute, we're going to get a response to that news from a co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, which promises the idea of a Green New Deal and has protested outside Congressman Pallone's office. To set this up, though, we're now going to replay the full three-minute exchange from Tuesday's program. I had just asked him about his decision to keep taking fossil fuels campaign donations, even though he now heads the committee that regulates energy. I am not a person who advocates saying that, um, you know, you're not going to take money from specific industries uh, or specific people associated with industry. Let me give you an example. For example, I, I think that one of the one of the charges was that, uh, you know, you, do, you shouldn't take money from utilities, right? Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, some of the utilities in my district, which, you know, which support me, uh, are some of the best utilities utilities in terms of moving towards uh, green initiatives and, you know, trying to get away from fossil fuels and encourage and 
encourage uh, renewables. So I just think that, you know, this idea that well, some of them, may, but 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 they may also have individual policies that they're trying to get through Congress or resist when Congress debates them. Uh, that would set up, especially now that you're chair of Energy and Commerce, um, a fundamental conflict of interest to be taking donations from that sector at all. Why wouldn't that be the case? Well, the problem, Brian, is that, you know, where do you draw the line? Okay, so does that mean that, you know, somebody who works for the utility can't contribute to me? To, to me? Or, for example, we have jurisdiction over health care. So does that mean hospitals can't contribute or doctors can't contribute or uh, insurance, health insurance companies can't contribute? And then, you know, we have jurisdiction over, uh, over um, uh, the Internet. Uh, does that mean that nobody who's involved with uh, Internet or software can contribute to me. Well, I think I the think progressive wing is trying to draw the line at fossil fuel related companies, and I guess that would include utility companies, because fossil fuel companies, they argue, should be seen as tobacco companies have been seen in the past. And you don't take contributions from tobacco companies, I presume. I don't think that I've ever... Um, As a matter of policy. I don't think I've ever drawn a line and said that just because uh, someone or some company, you know, uh, has business before our committee, which 60% of the legislation in the House of Representatives comes before the committee, that that person or corporate... Well, I guess you corporate. Because I just think that if you start going down that uh, road, uh, then nobody can contribute to you. I mean, and that's, you know, that's ultimately where we go. Now, that doesn't mean to say that, you know, I've been a big advocate for, for uh, you know, uh, having a system where, you know, you have a small contributions and the government matches the funds and, you know, the, the government has limits on contributions. But to just say that, you know, anybody who somehow does business with our committee uh, can't contribute, I think that goes too far. This, this, is, this is a big debate within the party, right? This is why people are getting primaried and going to get primaried married, right? I don't think so. I mean, I don't see it as much of a debate within the party. So we're back live. (laughs) And that was Congressman Frank Pallone from New Jersey, the new chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee on our program on Tuesday, stating at the end there that there's not much of a debate within the Democratic Party on the idea that Democrats shouldn't take money from fossil fuel companies. Now, this push to shun fossil fuels money was brought on largely by a grassroots movement called the Sunrise Movement, the same group that you may have heard protested at both Congressman Pallone's office and the office of House Minority Leader at the time, now the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, in December. And joining me now to talk about all of this and with a response to that interaction with the Congressman is Varshini Prakash, co-founder of the Sunrise Movement. Varshini, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure. How much of that was new to you? How much were you surprised to hear Congressman Pallone say in that exchange? Uh, I will say not so much was new, still felt just as shocking and frustrating, um, but we'd had almost a simultaneous, uh, a extremely similar conversation with him a few months back when we uh, actually confronted him at his office asking why he was so vocally opposed to the select committee for a Green New Deal that representative-elect at that time, Ocasio-Cortez, had put forward. Um, and if his 
100,000 plus donations from fossil fuel packs in 2018 had anything to do with that. Um, what is the status of the select New Deal? Uh, well, there isn't a Green New Deal committee. I think this is where Pelosi drew the line. But yes. there is a new select committee on climate change. Um, yes. How fine a distinction is that? For you, and how happy are you with the creation of a new select committee on climate change? Well, we actually had put forward a select committee for a Green New Deal actually in response to Nancy Pelosi's announcement um, at reviving a 10-year-old select committee for cli on, the cl on climate change that had existed um, a while back that was largely for the purpose of studying and the impacts of the climate crisis and communicating them to the public. Um, obviously, we felt that in 2018, now 2019, that was absolutely insufficient. And um, we put forward the Select Committee for a Green New Deal. Now, when the House rules came out last week, we were pretty disappointed to see that all of the major provisions that we had asked for that 45 other members of Congress had supported, that 200 organizations across the country had supported, that over 300 local officials had endorsed, um, did not make it in. We didn't see a mandate to actually draft a plan to study what um, what it would look like to actually get our country transformed, uh, every part of society and the economy in the next 12 years as the science demands. Um, we didn't see the committee bar fossil fuel, uh, fossil fuel funded politicians from sitting on the committee, something that we see essentially as a conflict of interest, somebody taking money from the industries that are wrecking our future, pouring money and having the capacity to bribe the people who set climate policy. And the last thing, which is extremely frustrating, is that the committee doesn't actually have subpoena power. Um, so that actually renders it even more uh, ineffective than the one that was created 10 years ago. We'll get into more um, details of the Green New Deal. A lot of people who have heard that term in the news recently don't know yet what that really means or what kind of legislation that would really um, produce. Uh, but I want to stay on, the, on that interaction with Congressman Pallone for, for just a couple of minutes more. We also want to open up the phones. Listeners, if you've been following the development of the Sunrise Movement or just want to react to anything you're hearing here, with co-founder Varshini Prakash or the exchange with Congressman Pallone, 212-433-WNYC is our phone number, 212-433-9692, or tweet at Brian Lehrer. Um, so he argued in that exchange that it's a slippery slope. If they say no fossil fuels money today, um, then there are other industries that the Energy and Commerce Committee also, uh, you know, regulates or oversees as a House uh, a, a committee. And where do you draw the line? He asked, soon they won't be able to take money from anybody was his complaint. And somebody else backing him up said um, it would be unilateral disarmament for the Democrats to do that when you know the Republicans are going to keep taking all kinds of corporate money. What's your response to that? Sure. Well, I don't really buy that argument. What is so wrong about asking politicians to remove 
the golden handcuffs from oil and gas CEOs and lobbyists that actually constrain our leaders' ability to work on the issues that matter to Americans um, at our at their greatest capacity. Um, he, you know, part of this exchange was saying, you know, I think if you went down that road, nobody can contribute to you. But we've seen in this last election cycle that over 1,300 candidates actually signed the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, which asks politicians um, to reject money from oil and gas executives, lobbyists, and front groups and PACs. Um, and we've seen that 34 of Pallone's colleagues in the House have even signed the pledge. And we do see that some of the, I don't think it's any surprise that the new freshmen who are pushing the most ambitious climate legislation that's actually the most in line with what the science calls for and tells us is necessary uh, are people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, all people who without hesitation signed the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge within days or weeks of launching their congressional campaigns. Um, and I don't know, in this exchange, I got to be real, he really did make it seem like his only friends were fossil fuel billionaires and CEOs of major companies. If you don't have people that you can actually rely on um, to support and fund you, maybe he needs to be spending a little bit more time uh, listening to the American people and not in private meetings and, and communication with uh, the, the wealthiest people in this country. I think we've seen a lot of... Uh, people come out like the many people in this country do not support the role that corporate money in politics has played. A majority of young people do not like the way in which fossil fuel companies have been able to, for the last 40 and 50 years, spend billions of dollars um, misleading the public on the science, misinforming the public on the science when they realize that it would affect their bottom line. And they've spent billions of dollars um, lobbying Congress and buying out politicians of both political parties um, to do their bidding. And my understanding is there's a real history here with this committee in particular, the House Energy and Commerce Committee, that Congressman Pallone now heads with Democratic control and with his um, seniority there. Um, this committee has the broadest jurisdiction of any congressional committee in terms of the kinds of industries that it oversees, um, you know, not just environment but uh, and, and energy, but also related to consumer protection, food and drug safety, telecommunication. So I think the internet giants are, um, you know, in the jurisdiction of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And it's become a campaign finance and cash cow for members of both parties. So many of these industries give to people who are in on the Energy and Commerce Committee, and then mm -hmm. they spread that money around. And, and that money that comes through the members of Energy and Commerce gets used to help finance the campaigns of many Democratic and Republican sure. candidates for the House. So in that context, um, where should Democrats draw the line, in your opinion? Should it be only at fossil fuels? I understand the reason for singling out fossil fuels, but do you also want to go further and say, um, you know, you also shouldn't take money from Internet companies or you also shouldn't take money from um, – food manufacturers who do business across state lines and therefore come under your your committee's jurisdiction. How far do you go or do you want to go? 
Sure. Well, I think it's actually interesting what he said at the end there um, about there not being a debate about this within the Democratic Party. And I fully think that that is untrue. And some of the most inspiring people powered values driven candidates who won elections uh, in 2018 were people who have completely sworn off corporate PAC money, um, who raised all of their money through small dollar, small dollar donations uh, and did so to communicate um, a, fund, a, a value system that is based in um, representing the many over representing the interests of the few. And I think we've saw that with people like Ayanna Presley, who actually represents me where I live in Massachusetts, um, that we saw that she was willing to go out on a limb and take a moral stance uh, on the issue of perhaps taking the no fossil fuel money pledge and actually pushing for 100 percent renewable energy by 2035 uh, while her incumbent uh, opponent was not. So I think there's a really vibrant conversation that is happening right now. And I think that if any politician, especially any Democrat, wants to remain relevant and garner the energy, the votes, the passion of young people in America in this political moment, um, they would do well to take the no fossil fuel money pledge uh, and back a Green New Deal. We've just heard clips today, starting with Now This News, featuring Robert Reich explaining the need for a Green New Deal. The Next System Project laid out some of the philosophical origins for the Green New Deal and some details of its principles. The Green News report highlighted the fact that these policies enjoy bipartisan support, at least as long as people don't know that it's the Democrats proposing them. The Dig spoke with Kate Arnoff about the new paradigm of economics the Green New Deal works with as a response to traditional neoliberalism. Democracy Now! addressed the criticism directed at Nancy Pelosi for her less-than-full-throated support of a Green New Deal. Sustainable Human featured Jeremy Rifkin examining the generational revolution that may portend major economic and environmental revolution. And finally, we just heard the Brian Lehrer Show speaking with the founder of the Sunrise Movement about the importance of getting fossil fuel money out of politics. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips going beyond the Green New Deal into some of the lesser-known issues of what's become known as climate justice. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash left. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now... We'll hear from you. Jay, this is excellent from Georgia. I wanted to call in about uh, political correctness because uh, just listened to your monologue about feelings, and it got me thinking about that. This, I tweeted something out about this a while back, and you know, effectively, what I what I think, and maybe I've, I just said this, I'm not sure, but the conservative idea that political correctness is run amok is a false one because their idea of what is political correctness is wrong. Political correctness is whatever is sort of, I guess, the status quo or the the de facto, I guess, truth. Is that right? And so, really, what what you know, you could say that the left are equally are into political incorrectness because 
we will criticize the police or criticize the military or criticize the institutions that the conservatives uh, will just, you know, die on a hill defending. So I think that's kind of funny. In, you know, their, their framing of, of being against political correctness is simply being wanting to be allowed to continue to say disparaging things about minorities and be offensive. You know, again, correctly I'm wrong, but technically that's not political correctness, or maybe that's just another definition. Anyway, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts or anyone else's about that. And maybe I'm completely wrong, but uh, I don't know, it occurred to me a while back and I uh, thought I'd share it because I remembered that after hearing that your uh, feelings section. Anyway, thanks very much. Have a good holiday. Cheers. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Abdul from DC. So I just finished listening to the um, progressive internationalism or was it an international progressivism episode. And, you know, of course I enjoyed it, but I was really, I kind of squirmed with discomfort listening to the one dude talking about the lack of a progressive foreign policy. And, um, you know, I guess the critique of Bernie not having a cohesive policy is a slightly different issue. That's more down to his policy platform. But as a progressive person in general and as a person of color, I kind of squirmed a little bit when he was talking about like the progressive foreign policy because as a progressive, I kind of see a lot of U.S. militarism as, as an extension of uh, imperialism and, you know, the sort of racism and uh, capitalist greed that's sort of part of the U.S. Uh, empire. I mean, you just had, I just listened to the imperialism episode a few, uh, yesterday actually, so that was fresh in my mind. And so I was trying to think like, what would a progressive foreign policy look like? I mean, what would a progressive defense policy look like? You know, like who would we bomb and why would we bomb them? And I guess as a progressive, I kind of feel like the answer to those questions would look very different from whatever this, uh, this guy had in mind. Like maybe a foreign policy, a progressive foreign policy might, might rely more on uh, trade, like fair trade, actually paying uh, developing countries a fair market price for their raw materials so that they could develop economically. Uh, again, I, I guess if you look at the way the European countries trade with each other within the European Union, they don't go to war uh, against each other to have access to their resources. They trade. And whatever natural resources a country like Belgium produces, it earns enough from selling them and, you know, from its relatively small industrial base that, you know, Belgium can provide a relatively decent uh, standard of living for its people. And so I, I guess a, a progressive foreign policy maybe might be more trade-based or economic-based as opposed to more uh, defense-based. Now, I don't know if we've had any genuine, I mean, I know like some of the Northern European countries, all the European countries have militaries, but they just don't go to war with each other. Uh, NATO, on the other hand, has gone to war usually against poorer countries. I'm thinking Libya, I'm thinking Afghanistan. Anyway, so I guess all of this is to say that I think a progressive foreign policy might be more trade-based and less defense-based, but that I don't imagine a progressive uh, military or a progressive defensive defense strategy would look too different from the one we have now, except maybe less uh, furious as far as like bombing uh, black and brown people uh, so that we can have access to their resources. Anyway, my two cents. Thanks again. Great episode, except for the kind of uncomfortable squirmy bit. Bye. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick response to Abdul on progressive foreign policy. I definitely think he's on to something. And just to add a little bit, this is completely random doesn't doesn't sound uh, particularly interesting, but I, I'm reading American foreign policy since World War II, the 20th edition, believe it or not, because uh, that sounded fun to me. And what that book was reminding me of just in the early pages of it is that where America is right now is uh, without the longstanding so-called soft power that America has had, you know, for quite a long time, you know, especially since the end of World War II. And uh, we lost it due to our uh, misadventures in Iraq, the way we decided to torture people, the way we decided to spy on ourselves and others. And so before all of that, other countries sort of used to see us as a generally benign or maybe even beneficent hegemon. And so they were sort of willing to go along with it. But not anymore, really. And so a progressive foreign policy should be sort of uh, anti-imperialistic, as we have claimed to be in the past, but really uh, never were that good at, and more focused on trade, but not just trade, but also aid. It's sort of in in the way we used to do things like the Marshall Plan, and and uh, so I would say to try to draw down our imperialistic tendencies, but with what power we have left, use it for good uh, through, you know, agreeing with Abdul, things like trade and aid. I think it was, you know, one of the first things I heard about politics when I was just barely starting to become conscious of, of the whole issue of politics was someone giving a speech saying, you know, how how much more would people love us? How much less would we have to go to war if instead of dropping bombs, we just dropped crates of bottled water to thirsty people, that sort of thing. Uh, secondly, to Zach on political correctness, um, here, here are my thoughts about uh, political correctness. It, it's very similar to politeness, which is that it, it's completely not arbitrary, but but 100% dictated by social norms. Like the definition of politeness is to adhere to social norms and to be impolite is to go against those norms. But social norms can change drastically from one society to another or in the, in the case of political correctness from one side of the political spectrum to the other is completely different. So progressive political correctness as it gets referred to uh, in this day and age is is things like you know attempts to push conservative oppressive social norms to become more welcoming or accepting uh, particularly accepting to those who've been traditionally marginalized whereas conservative political correctness which doesn't get talked about at all as if it didn't exist is the mirror image of that it, it attempts to perpetuate current social norms and power structures. So it's considered politically correct to say happy holidays, which is just inclusive. But you say that and the conservative political correctness thinks 
we must defend Christmas and Christians, and so all of a sudden there's a war on Christmas and Christians. Or if you protest police violence by respectfully kneeling during the anthem, then all of a sudden conservative political correctness kicks in and says, oh my God, you're affronting the flag and the soldiers and the entire nation itself. And so they go off the handle in that direction. And, you know, if you suggest that men might enjoy a dominant position in the social power structure and that they don't always use that power well, then all of a sudden there's a war on men. There's a need for a men's rights movement and a wave of men throwing away their razors in protest of the corporation that dared to speak against their power. And all of these are examples of one version of political correctness trying to push society in one direction and the other version of political correctness pushing back. That's really all it is. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the most unfair thing about the discussion is that it gets talked about as if political correctness only exists on one side of the spectrum. And now, uh, finally, I, I want to share something with you that I, I read a little while ago. I wish I had included it in the episode on Empire because that's where it fits. And I just didn't think of it until afterward. So this is a follow up on, on the Empire episode and, this fits so perfectly. I haven't said this in a while. It hasn't come up, but um, one of my favorite words because of the concept and and the feeling of it and just how it sounds and, and the emotion it elicits in the English language is the word haunting. I just love, like I've heard it used so perfectly in, in a few radio stories and it just has really stuck with me that um, it's just sort of a beautiful word that has a real depth of meaning. And this little excerpt from a book I'm going to read to you is perfectly, perfectly haunting in multiple ways, as you'll see. So this is a quick excerpt, or well, I mean, maybe a little extended excerpt from the book An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. I came across her when doing research for shows on Native peoples. I went and read her whole book, and this passage really stuck out to me as just a great analogy or metaphor. You know how I love analogies and metaphors. And then on top of it, it's haunting. So here's what she says. Sarah L. Winchester, the wealthy widow of William Wirt Winchester, built the Victorian mansion to avoid and elude ghosts, although there is no record of any ghosts ever having found their way into her home. Pausing for a second, this is in reference to the Winchester Mystery House. It can be found in uh, San Jose, California, or some suburb of uh, San Jose. It's right around there, and it's it's famous for being huge, built with the Winchester family fortune, because Sarah Winchester was, you know, a little bit off a rocker. Uh, continuing, it could be said, perhaps, that Mrs. Winchester's project from 1884 to her death in 1922 was a success. She likely was well aware of the widely publicized ghost dance in 1890, which led to the killing of Sitting Bull and the Wounded Knee Massacre. The dancers believed that the dance would bring back their dead warriors. It makes sense that Mrs. Winchester felt the need to guard herself from the ghosts of those killed by the Winchester repeating rifle, which her late husband's father had invented and produced in 1866. 
with later models being even more lethal. Mrs. Winchester inherited the fortune accumulated by her husband's family through sales of the rifle. There was one major purchaser, the U.S. Department of War. The chief reason for the War's Department purchases of the rifle in great quantities to kill Indians. The rifle was a technological innovation designed especially for the U.S. Army's campaigns against the Plains Indians following the Civil War. The Winchester House amazes all who tour it. There are five floors, more or less, since they are staggered. Each room in itself appears normal, decorated in the late 19th century Victorian mode. But there is more than meets the eye in getting from parlors to bedrooms to kitchen to closets and from floor to floor. Numerous stairways dead end, and secret trap doors hide the actual stairways. Closet doors open to walls, and pieces of furniture are really doors to closets. Huge bookcases serve as entrances to adjoining rooms. Part of the house was unfinished when the widow died, as she had construction workers build every day from dawn to dusk, adding rooms and traps until her death. Visitors trekking through the widow's home are astounded and perhaps saddened by the evidence all around them of the fears and anguish of an obviously mentally disturbed person. Yet, there is another possibility, a sense of the scaffolding that supports U.S. society, a kind of hologram in the minds of each and every person on the continent. Mrs. Winchester might have been more aware of the truth than most people, and therefore fearful of its consequences. Regardless, in continuing to find or invent enemies across the globe, expand what is already the largest military force in the world, and add to an elaborate global network of military bases, all in the name of national or global security, does not the United States today resemble Mrs. Winchester's constantly trying to foil her ghosts? Unquote. And with that... Keep the comments coming in. As always, the number to dial, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.